Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have a Bible, please get ready to turn to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Simeon, the stylite, who lived around A.D. 390 to 459, was a Syrian Christian ascetic who gave his life to live the most spiritual life possible. According to historians, Simeon developed a zeal for Christianity at the age of 13, reading the Beatitudes. And before the age of 16 years old, he entered the monastery to seek out a life of piety. But from the first moments, he gave himself up to the practice of austerity so extreme, and to all appearance a bit over the top, his fellow monks judged him unsuited to any form of community life that they asked him to leave the monastery. But that didn't stop Simeon from his zealousness. He shut himself up in a hut for over a year and a half, where he passed a whole season of Lent fasting from eating and drinking. When he emerged from the hut finally after this period, his achievement was hailed as a miracle. But as if that wasn't spiritual enough, he later took to standing continually upright, as long as his legs would hold him up. And then after that, Simeon sought a pillar in the slopes of the Syrian desert, climbed up to the top of it, and lived on it for the next six years. Simeon received many visitors on his desert perch, many of them who simply came to see if he was out of his mind. But the hermit explained that he was simply a Christian who wanted to commune with God in solitude, free from worldly distractions. Living on top of the pole in the desert was his way of separating himself from sin and consecrating himself to God. Well, as Simeon's fame grew more and more, people came to seek him out, asking his counsel, asking him to pray for them. And this left Simeon insufficient time for his own devotions. Eventually, Simeon decided he wanted to become even more spiritual. And so with the help of his friends, he built a column of over 50 feet tall, and three feet in diameter with a crossbar to keep him from falling off in his sleep. After all, the first pillar was only five feet tall, so he had to build it higher. And he remained there on the top of that 50 feet pillar for over 30 years until his death. Simeon the Stylite lived to almost 70 years old, although by that point he was consumed more by maggots than man. He gave a new meaning, a bit too literally perhaps, to Paul's command, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Which begs the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be spiritual? Living in an age where more and more people claim to be spiritual than religious, what does it mean for Christians to live spiritual lives? We're picking back up and headed toward the finish line with just two more sermons to go, including this one in our study through the Galatians, in our series, There is One Gospel. And before the summer, we were learning about how in the epistle of Galatians, Paul, the apostle, throughout the letter, vehemently defends the doctrine of justification by faith, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by the works of the law. This was because false teachers, known as the Judaizers, were insisting new and young Gentile Christians of Galatia that they must undergo circumcision, and observe Jewish laws in order to be truly Christian and in order to be part of Christ's church. And Galatians, the epistle of Galatians, was Paul's corrective to the false gospels of legalism that anything plus 
the gospel, add anything to Jesus' finished work on the cross, is actually distorting the gospel, is actually a false gospel, is not gospel, it's not Christianity when you add something to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's actually nullifying the grace of God. Hence Paul argued, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel that's different than the one you've heard, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. Literally, that was the fate of those who followed false faiths. Paul's message rings forth truer still today, doesn't it? In a day where the gospel is compromised or diluted in so many churches, where the gospel of grace has been exchanged for something entirely not the gospel, gospel plus works, gospel plus conservatism or progressivism, gospel plus Christian nationalism or wokeism, gospel plus social justice, gospel plus LGBTQIA, is not the gospel. So many so-called Christian churches today are majoring on these pluses. They are unapologetically saying the gospel is simply not enough. Well, Galatians reminds us, doesn't it, that there is only one true gospel. There is no other gospel. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. Amen? Well then, brothers and sisters, what then is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? It's the best news you will ever hear. That a holy God who created the world in order to display His glory and for us to know His infinite love created us, man and woman. And He did this by reconciling rebels who rejected His lordship and His word. This was God's plan from the beginning to set apart a people for Himself by sending His own Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins by His sinless life, by His substitute death, and by His resurrection. And as Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That is the heart of the letter, isn't it? Christ lives in me. Christ lives in you. Amen? Well then, how ought this unfathomable, unspeakable truth be lived out among us? That's what Paul seeks to explain and exhort in this final section of the letter. In the previous passage in Galatians in chapter 5, verses 16 through 26, Paul clarified two contrasting realities. What are the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit? What does it mean to be spiritually enslaved versus spiritually free? And he challenged in verse 16, walk by the Spirit. In verse 18, be led by the Spirit. In verse 25, live by the Spirit. And again in verse 25, keep in step with the Spirit. And in our passage today, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, Paul further expounds what it means to live a Spirit-led life. A Spirit-led life. So from our passage, I want to share with you four evidences of a truly spiritual life. Here's the outline so you can follow. The spiritual life is, point number one, sacrificial burden-bearing. Sacrificial burden-bearing from verses 1 and 2. Point number two, selfless sharing from verses 3 through 6. Point number three, spiritual sowing from verses 7 and 8. And point number four, steadfast persevering from verses 9 and 10. Those points again. Point number one, sacrificial burden bearing. Point number two, selfless sharing. 
Point number three, spiritual sowing. Point number four, steadfast persevering. Let me just be upfront with you. This passage was very theologically dense, and so I hope to get through the first two points only today. So part one, and then part two will follow next week. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will encourage you anew that in light of the gospel of grace that have been made known to us through Jesus Christ our Lord, that we would live spirit-filled, spirit-led lives to glorify Him. Guests and visitors, we welcome you today. Thank you so much for joining us. If you know yourself to not be a Christian, we especially welcome you. We've been praying for you, praying that God would lead you here today to hear His words. Scripture says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the words of Christ. Every single one of us who claim to be Christians, who profess to be Christians, came to know Jesus as God and Savior by hearing His word. So we pray that through this message, God would give you ears to hear and eyes to see His truth. We pray that through this word, you would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior today. Amen? So without further ado, let's turn to His word, found on page 975 of the Blue Bibles around you. If you are new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers, and I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open for the entire duration of my reading and preaching, and reference it often so you know that this is God's word for you to grow you in faith, hope, and love in Him. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, says this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen. So what are the evidences of true spiritual living? Point number one, sacrificial burden-bearing from verses 1 through 2. To give you some more content, context from chapter 5, uh, Paul presents his thesis statement. The reason why Christians ought to know and embrace the gospel of grace and reject the gospel of works is because for freedom, Christ set us free. Christianity is fundamentally a faith of freedom and not of bondage, not of slavery. You see in Galatia, as it is among so many so-called Christian churches today, this truth has been corrupted by two diametrically opposite extremes, which are manifestations of the same thing, the gospel of works, playing out in two opposite ways. Legalism, as I mentioned, following laws, rules, and regulations to obtain or work towards salvation. And the other extreme, licentiousness, when so-called believers presume on the grace of God and misuse their freedoms in Christ as a pretext for self-indulgence, immorality, or disregard for the moral law of God. And Paul had taught in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, that the antidote to such destructive abuses of God's grace is adhering to the law of loving service to one another. 
Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, if you look there, it says this, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, brothers and sisters, what Paul is saying is, loving God or knowing the love of God is simply loving others. Loving God is loving others. And so Paul exhorted, in order to do this, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, and those who do, sacrificially bear one another's burdens. This is the evidence of God's Holy Spirit working in our lives. Amen? Just look at the society around us. Do you see much of burden bearing in our society? Of course not. Why? Because the Spirit of God is not in them. But we who are of the faith, we who have the Spirit inside of us, we are a people who bears one another's burdens. Brothers and sisters, let me make it clear for you from the text, contrary to how our culture and society paints Christianity as a religion of hate, contrary to what our culture and society denies what is so obvious to the core, the central and fundamental message of Christianity is one of love. The most greatest, deepest, truest, matchless love of God. As 1 John 4 verses 7 through 8 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. Friends, God is love. He defines love. He is the source of love. There is no true love apart from Him. That's what the verse is saying. And in explicating how it is that God's people through love serve one another, Paul makes an interesting, perhaps surprising point. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Loving and serving one another requires confrontation. Let me say that again. Loving and serving one another requires confrontation. Loving others requires looking out for others, especially regarding sin. Isn't that interesting? Spiritual living first requires loving others by keeping a careful watch for others regarding sin. What this is teaching us primarily is that Christianity is not an individual religion. It is not simply about me and God. It is not merely about me loving God and God loving me. Loving God, again, is loving others. Christianity is personal, but never private. Christianity by nature is corporate. God saves us individually, but calls us into a covenant community. That's why there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian, you see. There ought to be no such Christian who is not known and committed to a local church body of born-again believers. This is why regenerate church membership is biblical and essential, as according to Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 and Matthew 28. Go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Don't claim to be a Christian and not be covenanted to a group of believers week after week where you can hear the gospel preached and be filled up in your heart and your mind so you can share it with others and let it overflow out of you throughout the week, where you can be held accountable, where you can be discipled by others, and where you can participate in the making of disciples of others and build up Christ's church as a result. God's plan of salvation is to redeem a people, not an individual. 
redeem a people for his own possession. United by the good news of Jesus Christ, characterized by a new and holy life. This is why in verse 1, Paul returns to addressing the Galatians as brothers. Paul is speaking to true, true Christians who made up the churches in Galatia. And Paul refers to them, you who are spiritual. You who are spiritual. By the word spiritual, Paul is contrasting those who in the previous passage live by the flesh to satisfy the desires of their flesh, isn't he? Those who are under the law. And those who are spiritual are not meant to distinguish some super spiritual elites in the church at all. Sadly, according to scripture, Simeon the Stylite, living on a pole for 30 years, doesn't necessarily make him more spiritual at all. So Paul says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, now this is why I told you from earlier on, there's so much dense theology here in these verses. The word caught uh, in any transgression means to indicate that this person was surprised or suddenly overtaken by sin. Paul means to distinguish a person who is habitually in sin, who practices sin regularly, who knowingly and willingly engages in sin and chooses sin over and over again. And hence Paul says to brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught, caught up, overtaken, surprised by sin, you who are spiritual, you Christians, should restore him. Aside from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 verses 25 through 20, this is the earliest teaching on something we know as church discipline, a practice that is clearly biblical, practice starting in the early church and throughout church history, which sadly has been lost and ignored in many Bible-believing churches today, the practice of church discipline. In recent years, as churches sought to be more seeker-friendly, more accommodating, more focused on drawing in a crowd rather than being a true biblical church, what is being taught in Scripture has been much ignored, especially regarding church membership and church discipline. Churches today disregard the clearly instructed and structured biblical process of church discipline. Now there's way too much for me to expound in the passage for me to get, to, get into too much into church discipline. You can find a sermon, however, on the topic on our website. You can reference if you want to learn more about what church discipline is. But here in this passage, the undebatable necessity and purpose of church discipline let me just say it this way. The church is a gathering of redeemed sinners. The church is a gathering of redeemed sinners. Redeemed because we know the gospel. Redeemed because we are repentant of our sins because of Jesus' death on the cross. Redeemed because we have been fully and finally forgiven of our sins, sins of the past, present, and future. Redeemed because we have been made as new creation and made alive from spiritual death unto eternal life. But here's the thing. On this side of heaven and in our mortal flesh, we are still called to fight sin, to not gratify the desires of the flesh, to put sin to death, to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires with the help of Christ. And that's why we need each other. That's why we need accountability in the local church so that when we are caught in any transgression, our fellow brothers and sisters can confront us of our sin in order that we can be restored back into right fellowship with God and with the church. Brothers and sisters, what comforting words this is, isn't it? We are not alone. You are not alone. I am not alone to fight this good fight of faith by myself. Not at all. Sin is deceitful and has a way of isolating us from God and from the church body, doesn't it? 
That's the devil's trick. All along, that's what he does. It's the same game plan over and over again for sin to blind us from the truth of the gospel. That's why when people stop coming to church, a well-known pastor says either they are in sin or they're about to be in sin. As Brother Tony Merritt spoke to us last Sunday from Psalm 30, in times of trouble, we have a tendency to run from God instead of to God. And that's why in our passage, Paul calls those who are spiritual, those who walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, who are in step with the Spirit, to be a people who are about the ministry of restoration. This is what Christians do. This is what Christians are. We seek the ministry of restoration. When you see a brother or sister struggling in sin, you go and you reach out, you step in and you confront. This is your responsibility to get into each other's lives, to speak truth and confront sin in hopes, in prayers of restoration. This is one of the most loving things that Christians can do for one another because we are all, every single one of us, is prone to sin, prone to stray and to wander. If you don't see someone at church for a while, okay, one week in the summer, two weeks in the summer, vacation time, we get it. But if you don't see them for a while, call them up or text them. Hey, I missed you on Sunday. Everything okay? You missed a really great word. It blessed and reminded me of such and such. Praying for you. If you see someone doing strange things, questionable things, consider calling them out. Hey, do you think you should be doing that? Do you think that's being a good witness of Jesus? You see, in our PC culture and society, politically correct culture and society, we have been made to think that loving others is simply tolerance and acceptance for anything. Letting them be. Letting people do whatever they want to do. Letting people be whatever they want to be. And so we adopt the same worldly philosophy in the church, don't we? So many churches have done this. But as one commentator says, tolerating evil in the church may appear to be loving, since it flies under the banner of unconditional acceptance. But such tolerance cannot be equated with love at all, since it does not confront an evil that will surely spread, and since such evil will surely destroy the perpetrator. Furthermore, another biblical scholar says, restoration cannot be accomplished without confrontation, and this may require words and a stern rebuke. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, love demands that we speak a word that is hard and that is difficult. Caring for others cannot be restricted to simply words of comfort alone. Sometimes it requires difficult, hard words. As Dr. Timothy George says, it is a sign of spiritual stupor, spiritual death that has befallen the body of Christ that church discipline is seldom, if ever, raised as a viable concern in evangelical churches today. Historically, the practice of church discipline served twofold functions. Number one, it aimed at restoring a lapsed brother or sister into full fellowship, if possible. And second, it marked off clearly the boundaries between the church and the world. Who is in and who is out? Again, brothers and sisters, this is what the church does. This is what the church is. To proclaim and to protect the what and the who of the gospel. This is what the church does This is what the church is. Now, wait a minute. Some of you spiritual purists are getting a little too excited, a little too many amens. Okay, I see your finger of judgment and subtle arrogance peeking up to condemn the disgraceful sinner. But before you do, heed Paul's instruction and caution. His instruction is this. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
So dial back your Pharisaic spirit, if you will. Pick up the fruit of the spirit of love and gentleness and extend it to the one who has been caught, surprised, overwhelmed by transgression and sin. So when you see someone in service scrolling on TikTok or Instagram, tuning into college football, or trying to slightly text with their toes, don't say, you, 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 degenerate sinner. Put that satanic instrument away. No. You say gently, lovingly, hey brother or sister, this is really helpful. You should pay attention. Or you should pray silently. Lord, please make that phone run out of battery this moment. I'll give him ears to hear and eyes to see your life-giving truth. Or when you see someone boasting about their material possessions or worldly pleasures on social media, consider how you can lovingly, gently confront. Hey brother, hey sister, have you considered how that might be distracting or hindering or perhaps stumbling to another brother or sister? That's how you should approach someone who is caught up in sin. And then heed Paul's caution. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see, the truth of the matter is, every single one of us are prone to be tempted to the sin of self-righteousness, arrogance, and pride. This was exactly the sin of the Judaizers, wasn't it? Their way was the right way. Paul's way was illegitimate. Paul's gospel wasn't gospel enough. It was insufficient. That was their argument. Just like Simeon, the stylite, it wasn't spiritual enough, so he sought to go higher and higher. Standing on the ground or standing high up on the pole, the sin, the temptation, is not where you are, it's in the heart. That's why Paul is emphasizing a spirit of gentleness. And if you're not able to confront someone else's sin in gentleness, that actually reveals your immaturity. You're not ready to do it. It reveals your arrogance, your self-righteousness. Remember that you are a sinner redeemed by Jesus' saving grace. Scripture teaches the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's reminding us all that we are weak and that we all have a tendency to stumble. It's reminding us that we need one another, don't we? And that's why Paul says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The word burdens means to describe something that is very, very heavy. It's implying, brothers and sisters, find comfort in this and encouragement in this, that you as Christians will have burdens in your life. Burdens too hard to bear on your own. That's simply a fact. You will have burdens in this life that you cannot bear on your own. I remember a couple years ago when we were first moving to our house in Hyattsville, several years ago, I was being overly ambitious while Jerry was running errands with Susan and the kids were asleep. I attempted to carry a very large and heavy mattress up a very narrow staircase. The task became apparently impossible because the stairway was so narrow and the mattress didn't quite fit as I was carrying it up. I really needed somebody from the top to lift up the mattress as I pushed the mattress forward from the bottom. But being the young, vigorous man that I was at the time, I thought I could do it. I pushed up the mattress with every strength in my body and at various points I got halfway about and I was knocked off my feet and pinned to the bottom of the steps from the weight of the mattress. I never sweated so much in my entire life. And at certain points, my muscles were so exhausted and frozen, I could not do anything. Well, I ended up holding the mattress about halfway up for dear life until Jerry and Susan came back. And finally, literally all it took was them just kind of helping me at the top, lifting it up while I pushed it up. And it was so easy to finally get the stinking mattress upstairs. It was that simple. But I could not bear the burden alone. 
Brothers and sisters, think on that a minute. Christians aren't meant to carry our burdens alone. We all have burdens, and God does not intend for us to carry them by ourselves in isolation, away from our brothers and sisters. Listen, the next phrase of verse 2 can seem initially ironic and contradictory. Paul has been emphasizing to Galatians, fulfilling the law won't save you, it will curse you. So what does he mean when he says, bearing one another's burdens in order to fulfill the law of Christ? The law of Christ is simply this, loving God is loving one another. Loving God is loving one another. Jesus had said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another according to John 13, 34. Or again, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you, John 15, 12. So again, brothers and sisters, let me emphasize from the passage, the law of Christ is the law of loving one another. Loving God is loving one another. Paul says it another way in Romans 13, 8. Owe nothing except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Brothers and sisters, what burdens have you carried here today? If you are discouraged in the Christian life, it may be because you are trying to carry too much weight all by yourself for way too long. If you come here discouraged, if you come here heavy laden, it's because you are carrying that burden all by yourself, all alone. God has given us each other to carry each other's burdens because He Himself is our ultimate burden bearer. As Psalm 68, 19 says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens. God is our salvation. He intends for you to share that burden, to be carried with one another in the faith. So dear brother, how can you share your burden with another fellow believer today? Dear sister, how can you do the same? By asking a fellow member to pray for you, perhaps. By asking a fellow member to help you in whatever you're going through. And consider how you can help someone else who look like they're carrying a very heavy load today by encouraging them through God's word, by reminding them of God's truth, by meeting practical needs, perhaps. Don't just say you are praying for them, but actually pray for them right there. Hey, can I pray for you? Pray for them right there. Call them up. Text them a Bible verse. Remind them of God's truth. Bring them a snack or a meal or a cup of coffee thinking of you, praying for you, here with you, fighting with you. Some of you are thinking, oh man, that's way too much work. I'm so busy, I don't have time for that. Okay, well, Paul has some more encouragement and challenge coming for you at the end of passage. Don't give up. Do not grow weary in doing good. But the text really points out the reality that bearing each other's burdens is not easy. It's hard. When someone confesses their sins to you, it's overwhelming, isn't it? When someone is struggling with something and just unloads all their emotional stress on you, it's hard to take, isn't it? But this is why the church is a cooperative sanctification collective. We are here together. That's why, please, turn to one another. Be there for each other. Love one another. Amen? By the way, members of NCBC, you guys do this so well. Thank you so much. I shared with you, some of you, that I had a crazy week, and several of you called me and texted me to pray for me last night. Thank you so much. I'm so encouraged. I'm so loved by you. Thank you so much. Recently, one of our visiting families had a baby, and I found out that another new family that's been visiting our church went all the way to Tacoma Park to drop them off a meal. Praise God. I was so encouraged. Thank you. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for serving and loving one another the way you do. John 13, 35 says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
So point number one, spiritual living is sacrificially bearing one another's burdens. Furthermore, in verse 3 and 4, much shorter point, Paul teaches us another evidence of spiritual living. Point number two, selfless sharing. Selfless sharing. Look at those verses. 3 through 6, it says this, For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now these words may seem a little harsh initially. Some of us are naturally offended when we hear, you are nothing. But Paul is simply emphasizing the fact that spirit-filled Christians and spirit-led churches are marked by people who are humble. We are a people who are humbled by God. Hence, Paul clarifies living for others requires a keen sense of self-awareness. Self-awareness. If you think you are so awesome and amazing, Paul says it plainly. If any of you here thinks you are so amazing and awesome, you are deceived. If you're saying to yourself, yeah, I know, I know I'm not Jesus, but I'm pretty up there, you know. I'm far beyond and way ahead of that guy or that girl. Paul says it to you. You are deceived. That just goes to show you exactly how spiritually immature you are if you think you are all that and a bag of chips. Paul, the foremost of Christians, probably next to Jesus, in our assessment, says it of himself in 1 Timothy 1.15, I am the chief of sinners. Be wary, brothers and sisters, of Christians who have a high sense of self who speak of themselves so arrogantly, I guarantee you, a time of crushing, a time of humble pie is coming for them by God. Why? Because God loves them. If they are truly Christian, God will humble them. God has no use of people who want to compete with His glory. Amen? We are a people who are well aware of the depravity of our sin and our inclination, our, our potential to sin. We are very well aware if we don't lean on God and on others, we will soon fall on our faces and we won't be able to get back up. As Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before the fall. You can guarantee it. If somebody smells like pride, they will fall to their destruction. It's coming. You see, in the ancient culture, many people held to the philosophy of Stoicism. It was taught that the goal of a happy life was apathia, a studied aloofness from pleasure and pain and self-sufficiency, the ability to brave the harsh elements of life without dependency on others. Roman intellects argued the primary sign of a well-ordained mind is a man's ability to remain in one place and linger on his own company as long as possible. Self-sufficiency, independence was what the culture prided itself on. But that's the difference between Roman Stoic ideology versus and modern philosophies of humanism and Christianity. They are polar opposites, you see. The myth of self-sufficiency is not a mark of courage or a mark of faith, but rather a sign of pride, as the Scripture teaches. In fact, independence is anti-Christian. We have a responsibility, brothers and sisters, to be burden-bearing, self-aware, humble members of the local church community. As 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us that we are all a part of a necessary and important member of one body, the body of Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 22 and on says this, The parts of the body that may seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we may bestow greater honor. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. 
If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Hence, that's why it says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Okay, now verse 5, you can admit it, it's a little confusing, because it seems a little contradicting. After Paul had said, bear one another's burdens, here, Paul is saying, bear your own burden. But again, Paul is just making a point, isn't he? Do your part. Examine your heart and your work according to the standard of God's word. Don't compare yourself with others. Be concerned about the priorities God has specifically given to you. Bear your own load. It's like that video of movers carrying a couch on social media. The two guys at the two ends are like uh, uh, trying to carry it, but the third guy in the middle are like <laughs> not doing anything. You know that video. Don't be that person. When deaconess Linda Legacy is going back and forth, cleaning up everything by herself, don't just stand there. Please help. When emails are sent, uh, three to five-year-old classes canceled due to the lack of volunteers. Please get childcare approved and get trained and serve. Praise God, I heard there were six new volunteers today getting trained. Praise God. But we need more. When you see a new visitor, please don't say to the other person, hey, did you see that new person? You go and say hi. Introduce yourself and welcome them for joining us today. If you've been attending services here for a while, instead of being unknown, please consider joining as a member and committing to us to grow with us and to serve with us. Be a valuable contributing member here by bearing your own load well. Help us bear one another's burdens even with more capacity. And that's why the next verse seems very odd. It seems very random, doesn't it? Paul is again emphasizing that spiritual living is having concern for the priorities of God. It's actually really amazing if you think about it. Did you know that according to church history, the true marks of a true church, so a bunch of Christians getting together, that doesn't constitute a church. The marks of a true church right preaching of the word, and right administration of the ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper. And so part of right administration of baptism, entrance into the church, church membership, and the unity and the purity of the church, Lord's Supper and church discipline were addressed in this passage. And now what Paul is doing in verse 6 is addressing right preaching. Okay, Paul is talking about the church here. Look at verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Simply, this verse is teaching that pastors should be paid for their labors. It's really simple and clear. That's what the verse itself is saying. The one who is taught the word, that's you, the members of the church, share all good things with the one who teaches, that's me, the main preacher of the word of the church. Now, of course, coming from me, this may seem awkward or even uncomfortable as someone who is the one who is the teacher and the one who is getting paid. But let me just argue with you from Scripture that it's biblical. Matthew 10.10, 10, For the laborer deserves his food. Luke 10.7, the laborer deserves his wages. 1 Corinthians 9.14, in the same way the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. 1 Timothy 5.17 and 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. But the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Listen, brothers and sisters, there's a point to this, okay? I, as the main preacher of the church, have a responsibility from God, before God, and before you, to faithfully give myself to the labors 
of preparing sermons and teaching you the Word of God to you week in and week out and to equip the body of saints for the work of the ministry and to be paid well for it. Thank you. You already do that. That is only if I am doing my job well. That is what the Bible says is good and right. If I am doing my job well in that, that's biblical. If at any point, however, you see me not preaching the true gospel and veering into heresy, if you see me slacking off, taking vacations randomly, not responding to anything, being lazy in my preparation, being comfortable, hoarding money, doing ministry like it's a regular job, you as members of this church collectively has the authority to rebuke me, to confront me, and fire me if you need to, if necessary. We have a mutual stewardship both ways. That's what the scripture instructs. Responsibility and accountability. Now, as one member of the church, I too do not take this command lightly. I too contribute financially to tithings and offerings of this church regularly. I have a piece. I have a stake in this because I love this church as you do. I own this church as you do. And I want the ministry of the word to grow and flourish through this body. And Paul is emphasizing that exact point. That's the reason why he's making this verse. So stand out, if you will. It's not about giving money so your pastor can have roof over my head. No, Paul and God is emphasizing, do you have skin in the game? Are you a participant or are you a spectator? Are you merely here to receive or are you here to contribute? The scripture says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No wonder I hear from fellow pastors all the time. It's very often the people of the church who never give or never serve or never really involve are the first people to always complain and grumble and first to leave when things get uncomfortable because their hearts were somewhere else. Their hearts were far from committing to this local body. Brothers and sisters, let the Word of God teach you that spiritual living is selfless giving and selfless sharing. Sharing all good things the Lord has given to you for the building up of His body, the church. The passage will go on to say, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And the passage goes on to say, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't give up. Keep going. But as I said, we're going to stop here and continue on to the passage next Sunday. But here's a challenge. Let me just end with this, conclude with this. How are you doing sacrificially bearing one another's burdens? How are you doing selflessly sharing the priorities of God that he has given to the church? How might you consider how you can bear your own load well? to be able to bear the burdens of fellow brothers and sisters who are dependent on you. Brothers and sisters, you should be reminded that Jesus Christ himself has borne upon himself the greatest burden for you and me on the cross, the burden of sin and shame as our substitute sacrifice because he has taken upon himself and selflessly given himself, all of himself to us in order that we can be forgiven and made new and one with him. It says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians 2 verses 6 and 8 says, Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, if you are here and you are not a Christian, or are not sure that you are, if you are not sure of the reason why you too belong in the family of God, why you belong in this church, here is God's word. Here is God's invitation to you. God sent His only begotten Son to die for you, 
Jesus Christ gave up His glory, gave up His life selflessly as your substitute sacrifice so that you can be forgiven of your sins, so that you can have new and eternal life. If you would repent of your sins, if you would trust and believe that Jesus died and rose again for you, if you would trust Him with your whole life today and tomorrow and forevermore. If you want to talk more about how you can follow Jesus, we would love to talk to you after service. The pastors of this church will be at the doors at the close of service, happy to talk to you. Or you could talk to somebody smiling next to you. We've been praying for you, eager to speak to you about how following Jesus is the most amazing thing you can ever do. Let me conclude. Dear NCBC family and brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord's Supper that we are about to partake is a symbol and commitment of our unity. It is a sign that we are one spiritual family. Our bond is thicker than any earthly familial bonds because our bond is made by the one, the Redeemer's blood, the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross by the Holy Spirit. It's a monthly checkup to examine our hearts, whether we are faithfully bearing the load of one another's burdens. So let's turn now to celebrate the Lord's Supper and be reminded of His graces.